All right, and welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. And I am not the guest. We have a special guest of honor tonight, the one and only Angela from the Literature Science Alliance. Hi, that's me. (laughs) So her boyfriend recommended that she check out Kurt Vonnegut, and I raised my hand real quick like, oh, can we read this with you? So we decided to get together to kind of do one big breakdown. If you are new to this channel, what we usually do is we go heavy, heavy, heavy into details on the books that we read. So we're really going to bring out a lot of the symbolism and maybe some of the hidden meanings behind this with the author's life in mind. If you're down for that sort of thing, please consider hitting the subscribe button. Real quick, we want to give a disclaimer that this is not going to be our traditional video because one, we have three people. So thank you again, Angela, for showing up tonight. We appreciate that. And maybe a little bit longer being that this is one entire very, very deep novel into one video. This work is published in 1959. This is the second work by Vonnegut, and it wasn't actually um, reviewed in literary circles. It was mostly reviewed in the sci-fi magazine circles. And this is a story where we get to experience war through diaries and journals but never like directly in the conflict of it but you still feel how powerless you are through it and sirens brings to this table this simple method of telling a a very extremely elaborate story um really quick rapid characterization and really strange relationships that are very Vonnegut. (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. So for some of the historical context and themes, we're going to talk today about loneliness, about free will, war and morality there of it, and the religion. So a good way to think about this story is it's kind of an allegory for many young American males from the 1920s and the 1950s, right? You have a generally carefree childhood. You're thrown off into this war and you come back and you're not really exactly sure how to readjust into life after all seeing all of these horrors. You see that through this novel, basically. And it's also like the Sputnik era of America, where there's a race to space. Now, remember, this came out in 59. Laika was the first dog shot to space in 1957 after Sputnik. And we didn't even land on the moon until 69, with the first spacesuit being invented in 64. So this predates all of that in terms of Kurt's mind, but it was actually pretty interesting kind of what he pulls off with this. I think from the book, we have a really good quote here that illustrates this. It says, it took us that long to realize that a purpose of human life, no matter who is controlling it, is to love whoever is around to be loved. That is so Vonnegut. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I think we're going to see this, and I know Angela's going to go a lot into free will. She's been doing a lot of more modern studies on free free will with her readings here recently. Let's jump into a quick plot recap, and then we're going to get into these themes and kind of break this book down. So in terms of plot, we have Winston Niles Rumford, a bombastic chrono-omniscient millionaire, builds the first private spaceship. So he's basically kind of like the Elon Musk (laughs) <laughs> before before Elon existed, right? <laughs> good, good reference. While flying, he hits a chronosynclastic infundibulum and escapes time. He just exists, always will, and sees all things that will happen. So he's basically now Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen, if you've read that. That chronosynclastic infundibulum is such a mouthful. <laughs> it is. It is. We will probably mispronounce several things along the way. But he basically materializes on Earth once every 59 days. And he basically invites this really rich man, Malachi Constant, to come witness it while while tons of people are outside in a mob outside of the mansion for, for his materialization. So he materializes, Malachi is there, and he tells him, hey, you're going to basically mate with my wife, <laughs> have a kid, <laughs> go to Mars, go to Mercury, come back to Earth, and then you're going to head off to Titan. Good talk. <laughs> Such easy news to hear. Well, it's kind of interesting because it kind of gives you very high level the plot 
of the whole book. Like he doesn't lie. Everything Rumford says, and when he does lie that one time, they kind of even call it out. So it's really interesting the way he kind of calls out the whole plot there. It's like Quentin Tarantino. Here's my whole movie. <laughs> What's weird is when I first read it, I thought that we would actually like have a cool space opera story, but that's not what we get. <laughs> no, it's not Star Wars at all, is it? <laughs> well, and that's no. why it's interesting that it was pitched to the sci-fi world, because I think Vonnegut was known as sci-fi, particularly after player piano and a lot of short stories. It was hard for him to kind of break away from that and like yeah it was just marketed that way too but despite their best efforts to avoid the prophecy beatrice and malachi well they, they do exactly what rumford says he's he's abducted off to mars and uh, so is beatrice on mars malachi has his mind wiped and is now referred to as unk a member of the martian militia and he soon learns that these brainwashing attempts are making him forget things kind of like memento the movie if you've seen that and it's the idea that he has these antennas that all the Martian infantry had these antennas put in their head and they're kind of told forced to do certain things and they're all preparing for this war on earth Mars versus earth right but what's interesting is all these Martians are actually just earthlings that have been relocated to Mars by by Rumford for this invasion for, for some other plot that has yet to be revealed the first thing he knows is he comes out from the hospital and he strangles a guy at the stake he doesn't know who it is but it's his best friend Stoney Stevenson and Stoney kind of whispers to him he needs to go find this journal that's going to unlock things for him. So fast forward, he finds the journal, he reads it, and he realizes that he's been having his mind wiped several times. So what's also interesting about these letters he's written to himself is it's kind of like a reboot of his personality of himself because he lists a bunch of things that he knows are true and experiences he has had and he somehow makes a whole friendship with a person that this version of Unz has never met. So it's it's a really interesting sort of reboot he gives himself whenever he comes out and reads this letter and then adds on to it again. And Unk soon meets Boaz, who has a little remote control that allows him to control all the, the militia men. People don't know he's in charge, but he's kind of one of the people in charge. And they prepare to fly off for this invasion of Earth. But kind of what happens is Boaz and Unk, by design from Rumford, go to Mercury instead. So they go crash land on, on Mercury. Mars militia go to attack Earth, and it don't go well. So the Martians get absolutely destroyed in their attempt to take over Earth. We'll talk about the significance of importance of that later. And then there are a few people that do survive for, I guess, plot device to kind of move it along. We'll see Beatrice later um, and, and, and Kronos and a, a few others as well. Uh, but we get back to Mercury where Unk and Boaz have crash landed and they're not allowed to leave. But Boaz is kind of happy, right? He thinks everything is awesome and he wants to make friends with the locals there. And I'm really bad at saying the name. They're the Harmoniums. I think it's just Harmoniums. Harmoniums. Like Harmony. Yeah. They're really cute little, I, I think of them as little diamond things. And they live off of vibrations. That's their sustenance, which is kind of very unique. So they're stuck there for several years by design. Yeah. And it's kind of like a puzzle. How do we get out of here? And Unk and Boaz are now at ends. They don't talk to each other. They separate their rations. They go to separate sides of their rooms to, to pout. And eventually he gets the message that he just has to turn the, the, the ship upside down. Since every time he hits this one button on the ship, it, it, it tries to go to the lowest part. They realize if they flip it upside down and hit the button, down is now up. So now the ship will escape. <laughs> so silly. I wish I had thought of that. Like, I really wish I had thought of that. It's so obvious. <laughs> That's Vonnegut for you. That's Vonnegut for you. So they return to Earth. 
hooray, the Space Wanderer has returned. And what happens once we get there? When Malachi returns to Earth as Unce, he does not realize that there is this whole new religion on Earth after the fallout of this Martian war that failed but was successful for Rumford's cause. And so he shows up and they have been expecting him because Rumford said there's going to be a space wanderer. Give him this ridiculous suit to wear (laughs) and then bring him to me when I show up. And then that is when Rumford is like, by the way, you are Malachi. Here are all the things that are wrong about you. And now you're going to Titan. Titan's just kind of another hoot in this journey where we meet Salo, the uh, Tralfal Midorian, which fans of Slaughterhouse-Five will recognize them much different as they're presented here than in that book. But it is fun to kind of see them, the all-knowing species that have lasted longer, so intelligent can see throughout time. He meets him and uh, basically finds out this whole thing has been a ruse where the Trophalmadorians have been manipulating mankind for generations and centuries to basically bring the spare part, <laughs> which is this lucky piece that his son carries around so that Salo can go home or continue on his journey, which is to deliver a very special message. Rumford is very upset by this, kind of throws a little hissy fit, and uh, Salo goes against his programming of waiting to deliver this message and decides to tell Rumford the message a little bit too late. Rumford dematerializes off to some other universe or something who knows but uh the message is kind of ridiculous it's greetings it's like a dot in his language (laughs) and uh basically they live on the rest of their lives there they die and as as malachi approaches the end of his life salo ushers him back to earth to indianapolis and and definitely not to florida it's terrible in florida is it not crypto (laughs) agreed (laughs) (laughs) i live in indy crypto lives in florida if you didn't know uh, and and we'll, we'll just say that's the plot and let's jump into some of our analysis right there. Okay, so jumping into analysis, let's just do a real quick thing on some of Kurt Vonnegut's life with loneliness because loneliness is something that's going to be important to all of his novels and it comes out in all of his novels. His characters don't read very realistic in the sense of a true literary character, which may be why it didn't end up in the literary circles at first. But some of that is some of the victimology, I guess, in a sense of what Kurt went through as a kid. If you didn't know, here in Indy, the Vonnegut family was actually very rich and very well known in many circles. And uh, his his mother was very rich and wealthy from a multimillionaire brewery owner and basically married another really well-respected family, the Vonnegut's Kurt Vonnegut Sr. And kind of what happened was the mom viewed raising kids as shelter, food, clothes on the back. But since they were so rich, she was very hands-off. They had yardsmen. They had people to help around the house. So she was never, ever directly involved with her kids. And the same was kind of true of Kurt Vonnegut Sr. as well, where Kurt Jr., Kurt Vonnegut, the author, felt very isolated. He had two siblings, but they kind of went off and played by themselves and didn't let him play in any of the reindeer games. <laughs> Good reference. <laughs> and this all kind of culminates at one point. So age seven, very important age to understand for Kurt Vonnegut in this novel, is one day Bernard ran a microphone up into his parents' room when he was 16, Kurt was seven, and started to listen to his parents argue. And that's when he learns a little bit of information that he goes over to Kurt's ear, leans over and kind of tells him, you were an accident. Kurt, at the age of seven, didn't know what an accident was, but knew that they were not good, to quote this author. So I think what we're going to see is a lot of, there's things out of our control. There's things that are going to happen, and there's there's not much you can do about it. You're, you're going to be a victim and powerless in a lot of these situations, and we're going to talk more about that with the war when we get into the war topic as well. But what you're going to see is there's things that are in your control. The idea that you love the people closest to you, and that's what Kurt's 
struggle was, was loving someone being so disconnected from his family members and other people around him. It's really interesting. I'm learning this kind of real time and a lot of his characters make more spent sense. Specifically, Chrono makes a lot more sense to me now because that is a kid that mm-hmm. thrives in isolation almost. Well, even Malachi too, if you think about it, because Noel didn't, well, the only time he ever met Malachi was on his 21st birthday. And it was even like a distant thing where Malachi wasn't even paying attention. He's telling him the secret to this, this investing strategy <laughs> with the Bible and he doesn't even pay attention. So there's even a disconnect between father and son there. It's actually kind of interesting, too, to to further down that line, the father-son thing. So Kurt's dad was an architect, but he kind of just did the bread and butter jobs. Like, he never really did nothing fancy. There's a ton of buildings known downtown with the Vonnegut name on it. Well, it was his granddad, Bernard Vonnegut, who was actually incredibly gifted and talented at a really unique architecture. So we have a dad or granddad that's really good at something, and then the son, not so much, kind of more the bread and butter guy that's not as talented. I think you see that here between Malachi and Noel as well, where he's not as gifted as his dad. The luck kind of runs out and he has this fall. The last thing I want to bring up in terms of the fall, crypto, what happens in October of 1929, my history teacher? The great stock market crash. The great stock market crash happens. So for a family with a ton of wealth in bonds in the stock market, what happened to them? Oh, their families were devastated uh, three times greater than your, your traditional family because they had so much more invested. People had bought on margin and spent past their life savings money that they were going to owe tremendously. So it comes back to bite them in the butt 10 hundred fold. Well, not only that, also Ponzi schemes were allowed here. So the Vonnegut family actually invested in a Ponzi scheme and basically went from, from riches to rags. Where the mom, particularly Edith, like I said, very hands-off, very not involved, went through this experience that Kurt described as a drug withdrawal. Seeing her lose everything, her dinner parties, her social status, her actual financial status, her inability to do these big shopping sprees, it just completely ruined her to the point where she started to have to take some like drugs to help her and such to kind of get through that prescribed drugs. It completely impacted her both just financially, but also also mentally, where she just couldn't focus anymore after that point in time. And Kurt kind of saw this growing up at the age of seven having to be yanked from private schools, having to go to public schools, not having friends, being told he's an accident. I think you see a lot of that, particularly with Malachi and the crash in this losing everything, that maybe you don't feel for Malachi just because I think Kurt Vonnegut specifically chose for you not to identify with Malachi right in the beginning. I love the idea of the parallels between both his life, uh, the stock market, and how uh, Constance Malachi just throws everything away, but his is almost deliberate to make a, a choice. But in in real life, it was accidental, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why you don't feel for him is he's doing this to himself on purpose to gain, not having to go. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say the same thing. Crypto is like, I don't feel bad for Malachi. The one business that did survive was the first one he sold. So, And one of the notes I wrote down here at the end as I kick it over to you for free will is that these it's worth noting that these are characters are not analogs of his real life. I think what he's doing is taking inspirations of the feelings and emotions more so than the individual characters and settings to drive kind of where I think the inspiration came from this because he wrote this in a matter of a couple of months it was kind of like hey I got this great story he got a a check to go write it and he's like okay actually I don't have a story I have to go write something really quick and I think that's why you see him pull out some of these 
experiences and feelings that he's had and tries to write them into a fictionalized universe. And why it jumps around so chaotically. He had no editor. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, now Mr. Baxter would be very upset to hear that. No, he, he actually was working with um, an editor that just got let go, and I think he went to Dell Publishing, and uh, it, it was a rushed job for sure. And I think you can see that. We're, let's, let's talk through some of that. Let's talk about uh, free will now, Angela. All right. So I, I get to handle free will, guys. Real light topic, you know, super <laughs> easy. But I guess if you don't know me, um, I do a lot of fantasy and sci-fi reading. And in my science fiction reading, specifically lately, I've read Watchmen and Exhalation. And this is this idea of free will, the idea of do we have it? Does it matter if you know if you have it or not is so compelling to me. It's probably my favorite part of this book is how we are exploring through the symbolism, through the plots and the characters. What does it mean to have free will if it's real? And then what does it mean? Like, how do you respond when you're told free will is not a thing anymore? And I think we see that in so many layers in this story. I think one of the first things that was brought up to me was the actual just narrative structure. Um, Una, you brought up a quote from the beginning if you want to talk about how we start off real specific, that whole concentric circle thing you brought up. I thought that was really cool. The town was Newport, Rhode Island, USA, Earth, Solar System, Milky Way. <laughs> so, so Vonnegut starts with this tight circle and then you start to kind of pull back as opposed to starting really far out and zooming in. And why is that? I think we have a really concrete example of this in the beginning with that fountain. Like there's an inordinate amount of detail at the fork in the road to describe this fountain that Malachi has to climb. And I think this is kind of very representative of what happens during the story. Because when you're in the circle at the, at the bottom of the fountain, all you can see is, is that, that circle. And that's also kind of true of free will. This is what I have control over in this circle. So then he climbs up to the next step, and then all of a sudden he can see this circle as well as the circle that he was just in. Go up another step. Well, now I can see the three circles. And that's kind of what happens throughout the story, is every time you start to see this is what the character's deciding, this is what they're choosing to do, you realize in the next scene, that was predetermined. That was Rumford controlling them. Then it was Rumford being controlled by the Trafalmadorians. Then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's this constant illusion of free will, but all you get when you're in that scene is what you can see in your one circle at that point in time, which is what is really brilliant about this opening scene with that fountain. So it makes, begs the question, does, does perspective even matter then? If there is or isn't free will. Yeah, and I thought a really interesting character for this conversation was Salo. So he's a robot, and his programming is his mm -hmm. lack of free will. He has to follow orders. Mm -hmm. But he, it, we're, we're led to, it, it's implied that he chooses not to listen to those orders at the end of the book. And I don't know what that means, because this whole story, this whole time, everyone's actions are predestined. They are fixed. There's nothing they can do. We have two characters who are like Odysseus, trying to get away from this story. Like, I mean, that's why this story's called The Sirens of Titan, alluding to the sirens and Odysseus and how he tied himself to the mast. That's what Beatrice and Malachi are doing, and it didn't matter. But here we have Salo with the dumbest message ever to take across space. <laughs> and he's able... <laughs> to break his programming. And I just don't know what that means in this conversation. I think the way I interpret my take on Salo is the reason he broke his message and all of the characters throughout this, right? In terms of the antennas, uh, you know, the Martians being controlled by the antennas in terms of what Chrono could or couldn't say to his dad, 
when he was on Titan with the Bluebirds and such, the characters always have specific moments where they can't control the the roller coaster, right? We have we have that one quote: "I didn't design the roller coaster. I don't own it, and I don't say who rides and who doesn't. I just know what it's shaped like." And I think that's kind of what we're seeing with with Salo is he was going to, my guess, my take on it, is, is going to have to stop at that place anyways. But what's in his choice and what's within the character's choices on Mars and such is those moments of humanity of relating directly one-on-one. So they're on the roller coaster, but you can turn and talk to the person on the roller coaster next to you and get to know them, right? Salo saw how upset Rumford was that this is a moment for him to express humanity, which is interesting because he's the machine, right? He, he's oddly enough the one that is most <laughs> human-like and expressing that humanity. In that moment where he has at least some control is my take from it. Because I took, I took it to be free will is the shape of the roller coaster of the events that are going to happen, the scenes that you're going to be playing. But your reactions with people are in your control is kind of how I took a lot of this novel. That's how exactly how I took it as well. I felt like with Salo and with all the characters, it's the relationships that allow you to break free will. And I think this could be the proof, too, that Rumford, Rumford's great lie is that there isn't free will when there is. And it's the relationships that you have with these people that allow you to gain free will. You see that when Unk makes his relationship with Boaz. You see this with when Constance tries to repair the relationship with, uh, you know, Beatrice and his son. You see this with Salo finally having a relationship with a human, him being able to choose free will over his program. So to play devil's advocate to myself and you right now, we have the, the buttons on the machines, right? The only controls available to those on board were two push buttons on the center post of the cabin. One labeled off, the on button simply started a flight from Mars, the off button was connected to nothing. It was installed at the insistence of the Martian mental health experts who said that the human (laughs) beings were always happier with machinery they thought they could turn off. And that's what Angela's bringing up is, was his decision to, to give that message actually free will or was that the illusion button that he thought he was making that decision but it was really programmed into him are the trafalmadorians being controlled by some other alien race to to do something for them right no we could definitely make the argument that they were well and then also to play devil's advocate to myself i guess (laughs) this is this is a concentric circle we didn't see this coming (laughs) how many layers did we go in here so we have (laughs) we have this chronosynclastic infundibula which the idea is you could have two truths exist at the same time that are contradictory, Mm -hmm, right? Like mm -hmm. that's what this funnel orange peel thing is. And it, it's really interesting how it's used as a device in this story with Rumford. Like I think I thought the minute this was added, my brain's like, well, this is a story where we have quote unquote time travel, which means, our timeline is fixed, which means everything's predestined. That's how I was taking it. You know, I read a lot of sci-fi. There's mm-hmm. a lot of way to do time travel. This mm-hmm. one was one with a fixed timeline. I guess Rumford didn't get the message that it it being fixed meant he had no say. <laughs> but it seems like he didn't get there to the end. Well, well, what's interesting, too, is... So let's pretend we're controlling the roller coaster, but the emotions are within our control. Am I excited? Am I scared on this roller coaster? Rumford, in the first chapter said, wait till I tell you who's controlling me. You remember that when he was talking to Malachi? Even when he finds out, which allegedly makes me think he knows this is going to happen, but even when he finds out that Salo was doing this in Trafalmadorans, he still gets mad. (laughs) 
Like he knew it was going to happen and still got upset when it actually did happen. Yeah, it's like he thought he could cheat the system somehow, that he was smarter or better than it, but he was always such an arrogant character. So I, I despised him more than Malachi. So. Oh, you're supposed to. Oh, you're supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> like tell your wife, hey, I wouldn't tell you this if it wasn't a better future for you. Ugh. Totally leaving out that she will be raped. Like <laughs> that that's part of her future. <laughs> Sounds like an author that had a hard time connecting and really understanding relationships, doesn't it? <laughs> and women. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 So let me bring up another point here. So if you guys didn't know, he started to kind of do an anthropology degree at the University of Chicago, the study of people, if you will. So Vonnegut became very close and enamored with Robert Redfield, an anthropologist who focused on folk society. The idea is that small, homogenous groups held together by respective rituals and a strong interpersonal relationships were the strongest. I really like the description of the chronosynclastic infundibula with that in mind. The idea that this daddy can be right and this daddy can be right. Now, if they ever met, they would, you know, hate each other and get in an argument and would have to argue which one was right. But there's a, the universe is a big space. There's a lot of places where a lot of daddies can be right without having to be wrong, like when they're connected, basically. And I kind of took a little bit of that folk society influence from that with the idea that the universe is a big space. We, there's a lot of different ways to be right in, in a specific lens, in a sense. Could this also be kind of his background of and leading to where like your idea of war as a theme here is that different nations have different ideas of what's best for them or that tribal identity that we have as people is ingrained into us. And that doesn't make another tribe or nation bad. It just makes them different. Yeah. Well, think of, think about when the war happened. Right now, like if I met a German person, I, I would, hi, how, how, where do you grow up in Germany? How, how are you? But during World War II, they're like this alien species. When you think about a Mars versus Earth invasion, you kind of have two different species kind of, but it's kind of flipped where it's, no, these are just disconnected individuals from Earth that got hired onto this army and it's Earthlings against Earthlings, not Mars against Earthlings, which I think is interesting. And it's just also way closer to the truth of our actual lives. I mean, it's a timeless message of people disagree with other people, not necessarily because either one's right. It's just cultural differences. And I think the idea yeah. with Earth versus Mars is he's trying to make it so ludicrous that like, look, humans could be millions of miles or 100,000 miles or whatever it is to, to Mars away, and it's going to be just as dumb as if they're fighting in the same state. So let's talk a little bit more focused on war, right? So Vonnegut is very famous for having survived the Dresden bombings. He pseudo jokes. Jokes, in, jokes are his way of dealing with, with horror in a sense, but he was placed into a basement. The bombs happened. Airs sucked out, people are dying left and right from air being pulled out from people's houses. And then the next day, him and his troops come out and they got to clear up the rubble, they got to pull people out from the bodies, but he never was in the horror itself. And it's interesting the way he paints basically Malachi to go through a similar experience. It starts with conscription in terms of a bunch of dissatisfied, disaffected people are brought to Mars with no connections with the idea of getting earned, what is it, $9 in room and board an hour? <laughs> <laughs> come join the martian army we never said which army <laughs> but this is true of world war ii with what was happening in the beginning particularly before the draft there were benefits and and perks given to people that particularly those people that didn't have a big support system or maybe weren't wealthy 
thought that that looked a lot more attractive and were more likely to to join the army basically yeah they were able to get easier loans they were able to get easier housing they got better credit uh it was also a way to get food because you know the depression was still ravaging the country as well so there were there were a lot of positives to to joining up in the military at the time but particularly once the war really started cooking i mean the whole country was about the war right yes total war is the term we used for the whole effort of the country behind the efforts of the war and we see that on the mars this is actually probably one of my this is the part that i don't know why i just laughed at this but mars is like that too where they they literally said everything on mars is dedicated towards the war effort and my favorite part about how they found that that unique weapon, the his lucky piece, is it was a school factory tour of a flamethrower factory. <laughs> like, where are you going to class today, kids? We're going on a flame factory tour. <laughs> I actually think there are cases where they took them uh, to like the shops at GMC and Ford, and the kids would go around and see them making the tanks and everything. I, I think that actually did happen. So he may be referencing some real life things that happened in like Detroit and stuff. Yeah, and in a similar vein, I liked when we got to see Beatrice's part of the war because it reminded me of in America how all the women were still a part of the war effort in many ways. Sometimes they were refining uranium and didn't know it. Like, I, I really do think it captured the we're all in of the World War II specifically, I guess is what we're referencing. But For sure. Now for training... In terms of how the army breaks you of individualism, we have a quote. We can make the center of a man's memory virtually as sterile as a scalpel, fresh from the autoclave. But grains of new experience begin to accumulate on it at once. These grains, in turn, form themselves into patterns not necessarily favorable to military thinking. Unfortunately, this problem of recontamination seems insoluble. So we get a little bit here of we can program humans to do something. We can break people of their individuality, but you can't control necessarily all of their emotions, how they feel about things or how they think about specific things. And I think that's what they kind of explore in this book really well with how Unk gets that journal, how him and Stoney were still friends and broke against code. You, you, can, you can program people only so much, but they're still going to have these grains contaminate them that that formulate them to have their own personalities and drive certain ways while other people may go other ways depending on what their personality traits are i think that comes down to a lot of our humanity right that's what makes us human is we really don't want to kill each other i think for the most part your your average person doesn't want to kill other people and you have to take away a person's humanity but i don't think you can ever ever truly do that to quote unquote like a normal person yeah and it also comes down to that that big whole theme of is your personality based off your experiences or how much of it is what you're born with you know how predisposed are you to have certain innate parts of your personality around and i don't think a full memory wipe could even get rid of that part of your personality if we're arguing that's a thing you know it's it's another sci-fi trope that I thought was interesting here when we had the mind wiping going on. Yeah, I love that because I'm not a violent person and I don't know if I could ever be forced to violence except for maybe extenuating circumstances. Could it be bred into me or could it be, you know, taught into me? That's a that's a that's a deep question. Come back to that free will, right? I feel like it's kind of even explored a little bit with Salo. Like I feel like we're kind of moving a little bit. So if we're going to talk about tropes, we have to talk about the uh, the ship of Theseus. If I'm saying that correctly, have you guys heard about that one? Are you talking about Greek mythology, Theseus? Yeah, Theseus. I vaguely was he the one who got the fleece? I don't remember. Well, the the, the ship though is where 
let's say the ship comes back and you have to replace a board, so you replace that board. Then you have to replace another board. And eventually you'll have replaced every single part of that ship. The idea is when is it no longer that ship? When is, if you replace someone's memory or you program them a certain way, and even explored later on with Salo, where he was broken down and uh, Malachi had to replace him, at what point are you no longer you or have you been programmed with someone else's thing? It's, it's a very loose interpretation of it, but it's there, right? Well, and then I can add that biological perspective I have where the turnover of the cells on your body, your skin cells, your hair cells, it, it's pretty quick. Like you get a whole new set of hair like every seven years, but you don't think of it as new hair. Well, it's like a relay race, right? Like I'm going to break this cell apart. Now you're going to turn into two and that one's going to turn off. And it's kind of, it's, it's, just, it's interesting. But you're a whole new person, right? Except for really your brain. That's the only thing that is truly you perhaps. Except for a soul. Like I said, I thought the mind wipe, that was really cool for me in that regard. Like, I know it was about war and all of that, but I was very much in, ooh, what are you? What makes you, you? What makes you, you? I guess the reason I was thinking about this is Unce after the mind wipe is a much more palatable character for me, but I don't know why. So it makes me feel Malachi was a product of his experiences and that his innate personality was actually much less arrogant and, you know, standoffish. Well, that comes down to maybe the materialistic view of Vonnegut on the U.S. at the time of how it's stuff, stuff, stuff. And even at the time, too, you had the Nuremberg trials where I didn't do it. My boss told me to do it, right? I'm not responsible. It was my boss that told me that needed to do that. All these people coming out of war still took those actions, conscious or not. Now, whether they're responsible or not, they will always be responsible for their morality and what they had to do to achieve certain things during this war too, right? Exactly. All right. One other thing I wanted to bring up was kind of like the buddy system with Boaz before moving on. And the idea is that you did have buddy systems. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut's buddy was Bernard O'Hare that he went and served in World War II during the Battle of the Bulge. They had to share everything, food, ammunition, clothing. And I thought it was kind of interesting the way they kind of explored this with Mercury where, if you remember, they had to kind of split their rations. And Boaz, who was originally very controlling, right, with he was the army guy that was programmed to hurt others, to bend people to his will with that, that remote control box, right? But as soon as we got on to Mercury with the harmoniums, he tried to, he flipped, right? He became this person that wanted to care for the harmoniums and live at one with the environment, with the locals, if you will. You had a very hot and cold side of Mercury. You had opposing views, just like you saw with the, the armies in, in World War II. You have two opposing people, Germans, Americans, hot, cold. And then you have the harmoniums that can live in peace between all of them. And Boaz wanted to do that as well. But if we stick with that, with that, that humanity question, just because he was at peace with the harmoniums, was he ever really friends with them? Because they couldn't think. They weren't, they didn't have complex emotions. They just responded to those pulses and lit, like lived off of the pulse and just said, I'm glad you're there, basically. So I think Boaz had kind of one of those really tragic endings where it seemed really peaceful, where he was living in harmony with these harmoniums, but it wasn't a true humanitarian experience where he wasn't truly emotionally connecting with anyone in that experience. Because I, I guess I just didn't see it as tragic because I don't want to define what made him feel complete and happy like what like, would that make me feel that way probably not but with everything he's done I mean he's probably also thinking about how many people he has hurt and so here was a situation where he really couldn't hurt anyone emotionally or physically anymore 
And if that makes him content and at peace... I think it's a question Vonnegut's asking, right? Because isn't that also similar to how he explores Beatrice? Where she is very disconnected and disaffected by everything. She doesn't even raise her son on Mars when she's on Mars. I'm not sure if the mind wipe made her not know, but the whole time she was disconnected and, and when they moved to Titan, she's disconnected then as well. And I think this was symbolized with, if you remember, she had, was it the white pony with the white dress, with the white clothes? It shows that she was very clean. She didn't want to get dirty with, because because connecting with people, you can get hurt. You can get dirty doing that sort of thing. That just the way Vonnegut's brain works, I've started to interpret that that's a way of showing uh, a fear of, of connection. And Rumford even calls her out when he sends her to Titan, where he said that you've spent your whole life not getting contaminated, not wanting to get busy and connected with someone. And it's on Titan that she finally, if you remember, when she wanted to actually connect with Malachi, she'd stick the oar in in the shore of the water with a white banner showing that signification of she's ready to give up is one interpretation, but I also took it as that she's ready to connect. And that's when Malachi would come over. And in the same way, why did she never clean anything in the house? It wasn't just because Malachi would do it for her. It was because she didn't want to get involved the way that she was so disconnected her whole life, the same way that, that probably Vonnegut saw maybe his mom not want to get involved with things, having servants do things. That's kind of how I took some of that disconnection. I take that thought process and kind of look at it through a different lens with Boaz, where he is connecting in a different way with these harmoniums, but it's definitely a one-way street. I mean, let me ask you, Angela, you're saying that 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 can still be a friendship, right? That it, it can be a, a friendship can be a one-way street. It may not be a healthy relationship, but it can still be a friendship, right? Yeah, and I guess I'm also comparing it to so having relationships with pets, you know, people would still call that a connection, but people would also, I guess, rate that based off the quote-unquote complexity of your pet. I think people would find it more relatable for you to have a close relationship with a dog or a cat, but would be weirded out if it was a fish. But I also just, (laughs) you know, like, you know what I'm saying? I feel like these harmoniums are very similar to fish and other things that we seem to think only have like a, um, a need for food instinct, I guess is what I'll say. Angela, Angela. Yeah. Are you a yeah. fish person? <laughs> I'm not, actually. My coworker is. She has so many I've, goldfish at work. Okay. They're pretty I feel like cute. you were a little bit bitter there. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just bitter at judgment oh, overall. Okay. okay, good. good. <laughs> I'm a cat person. <laughs> Cue photos of cats that Uno won't put in, but I have two cats. <laughs> uh, I was just teasing. No, I... Yeah, no, I mean, I guess... Yeah, I wouldn't say it's un. I wouldn't say it's a healthy relationship, but also it's all. He's also not going to get hurt by these harmoniums either. So I guess it's unhealthy, but he's not going to have mental health problems. He's going to eat. He's he will live for himself a full life. So for me, I guess with that question proposed, I'm okay with how Boaz ends up. I think yeah, I think you've nailed it. I, I agree with everything that you said. I think it's a personal reaction from there too. Like, is that acceptable? Is that kind of like a, is he settling? Is he settling hard? Like, <laughs> well, he's the only one that gets the happy ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Well, come on, man. He, we had Malachi get uh, uh, hypnotized at the end to see his old buddy, Stoney. Don't even. 
Don't even. I think Chrono had a good time. Chrono got to be with bird people and fly a lot. I thought that would have been fun. Oh, yeah. That would have been great. So with the with the war theme, I thought that, you know, the randomness of war was really also well portrayed in the randomness of the plot of this story. I just yeah. thought the structure of the book also really emphasized how random and sometimes it just it just seems pointless war. And this book at times sometimes felt random and pointless. Like, why are we doing this? And it was very intentional. And I thought it does get that point across. So I guess that more fits into war. And it, well, it, I think it segues us into the religion side of things of are we constantly looking for meaning and purpose behind every little thing that we do? Do we ascribe this happened to us, this good thing happened to us because of luck, because of God? Or is it just randomly good things happening as opposed to the randomly bad things happening of war? Is, is a big question from this book, right? So I think that with our last theme here, Vonnegut, I feel like it's a little bit tacked on, but I do feel like that he's taking a very heavy satirical swing at organized religion and specifically Christianity. Well, he is an atheist, so that wouldn't be shocking. <laughs> yeah. So I start us In off theory, here. Atheists should hate all religions, not just Christianity, but yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's a great point. But I think that he's going after this one specifically because it's the most prominent religion in the world and it's the one that maybe he can affect the most people or do the most quote harm or good however you want to look at that are there more christians than there are hindu or muslim i feel like hindu is pretty up there but no christianity I'm just curious. Is, christianity is the largest religion in the world with about 2.1 billion followers followed by okay. uh, yeah followed by hinduism at about 1.6 uh within the last you know calculation roughly of people and then uh islam follows up uh, with third all right. Well, I'm glad I'm not, was, I wasn't far off with Hindu because I felt like <laughs> India is <Yeah>. very populated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you have to remember a large portion of uh, India is not Hindu. They're, they're Buddhists. So Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I start us off here with a quote. Uh, Mankind, ignorant of the truths that lie within every human being, look outward pushed ever outward. What mankind hoped to learn in its outward push was who was actually in charge of all creation and what all creation was all about. And I think that this story really does parallel a lot with uh, Christianity and the Bible and God and Jesus. And if you will indulge, indulge me just a few minutes here of things that I have to kind of set the stage here, uh, we see that uh, to answer your question, Ike, of why you don't like uh, Rumford is he is supposed to be God. And as an atheist, Vonnegut doesn't like God or believe in God or, or think that you should turn to God. And so he's going to paint this this character very unlikable. Uh, he controls the Martians. Uh, he sends them into an unimplementable war. Uh, he's very vain and thinks of only himself and that he almost has to be worshipped. He gets mad at others when they worship or think of other people. He's very cold and distant. Uh, he... he he does all these very negative things, and that's very Old Testament, uh, like the flood or the way that, you know, Job is treated mm -hmm. by God, very much mm -hmm. so the, the old God of wrath and brimstone and fire. We do see Rumford evolve and change over time, just like God did through the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, and when we get to the New Testament, we have enter a new character, and that would be Constance, who is going to be the, uh, the the savior character or the Jesus character of the story. Well, isn't, there also, similar... isn't there also a character like Jonah and the whale in the, in the Bible, too? 
now that you bring that up, because if you remember, Rumford's ship was called the Whale. Yeah, I think there are a lot of examples through this story to to support this. Uh, you could think of it also the journey of Jesus out into the desert. Uh, he's sent away uh, by his father, and Constance is sent, you know, to Mercury to reflect upon himself, right, before mm-hmm. he goes back mm-hmm. to Earth to save mm-hmm. the people, just like mm-hmm. Jesus does. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, Jesus slash Constance is getting in touch with his humanity, uh, so I, I feel like there's a lot there. And I, I think the journey itself represents something as well. The, the, the journey for Jesus was introspection, but was it anti the other religions, right? Because he's trying to prophesize that this is the one religion. This is the one true faith or belief that you have to have. And we see that in the story where space exploration, the journey almost becomes anti-religion here as well of that we're going to find our answers in the cosmos, that's anti-religion. We're on this big spaceship called Earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, ex- yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I feel like that... And, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just thinking, so, you know, if Unce is meant to kind of be that Jesus character, I, I did find it very a very interesting choice to have these Malachi's, so these, these hanging things. And it's very now similar in my brain to, like, the crucifix with Jesus. You know, it's... But I, I, but also Malachi's like the anti-Jesus, right? Like he's the thing you don't want to be in this religion, from what I took. And I feel that's the the redemption part of it, kind of that Greek maybe influence of he's he's not taking it one hundred percent. Again, I said at the beginning, I think this feels a little bit tacked on. We know Vonnegut; he's trying to shove as much in there as possible. He doesn't know if this is going to be his last book ever. Uh, so I, I do think that a little bit is in there. I also feel that he's using religion against itself. He's trying to pit the Bible of its beliefs in God will make you have a better life if you just do what he says. Well, you don't need Mm -hmm. religion to treat other people with respect or to love your neighbor. And I think it's interesting the way that he uses the structure of the Bible, but almost satiricizes it in a sense, but has the same values, right? He has Western values as a white american male and he injects those but he's like but you don't need the bible but he stands for everything that the bible represents too interestingly enough yeah it's the jeffersonian bible that he basically did oh that's a great point that's a I'm great a point. unitarian i know all about oh, the jefferson oh, okay bible. <laughs> well okay so for for the audience that doesn't know what the jefferson bible was that was basically a stripped down bible where they took out the miracles they took out some of the supernatural things, and it was just on the Jesus teachings, I believe, from a high level. Is that is that kind of correct? Yeah, it's, it's very short in comparison. <laughs> but yeah, it's mostly just the morals that you take from the Bible. It's, it's strip all the mythology or the miracles, whatever you want to call it, all the things that maybe seem unrealistic, and but keep keep the mor- morals, you know, keep, keep the teachings you want your kids to know. Yeah, I love that. I, I feel like what he is trying to do in this story is even further step from that is that he's, he's making a mockery of Christianity. Uh, you know, and we see that in the establishment of a new religion, like with the, the, the Jefferson Bible, right. Where he creates the church of God, the utterly indifferent. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that he says, you know, God doesn't care what happens. And he's saying this very honestly, God, because in the new Testament, God is very hands off and he is going to let somebody else do the work for him. And that's very much like um, 
Rumford, Rumford, right? He's becoming hands off and he's letting Unk or he's letting Constance do this for him. Uh, and I have a quote from the book that says, any man who would change the world in a significant way must have ownership, a genial willingness to shed other people's blood and a plausible new religion to introduce the brief period of repentance and horror that usually follows bloodshed. And that's that's harsh because anytime there's been an introduction to a new religion, it almost wipes out the old religions. I mean, how many people still worship Thor and Odin nowadays? As we just talked about a second ago, right, Angela? What's the number one religion? It's not Thor and Odin anymore. I was shocked growing up when I, because I grew up in Cleveland, which actually has one of the largest Jewish populations, I think, in the world, minus, you know, Israel. Um, Because we have like the Maltz Museum and I grew up celebrating all of the Jewish holidays. At least we got school off. And then I learned it's like 0.02% of the population or something very small that celebrates and that celebrates that that it is part of the part of Judaism. And I was just I was shocked because I thought it would be a higher percentage. But like, as you said, Christianity kind of took over from there to a large extent. It was the one where the religion wrote into their playbook that you shall spread it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a smart move. And I mean, because if you look at like the playbook of the Church of God, Utterly Indifferent, theirs is more like, take care of the people. God will take care of himself. And yeah. our, our atheist yeah. guys like, you know, our atheist Vonnegut here is basically saying, you don't need other people. You don't need God. You just need other people. That's the essentials of a religion. And that's really harsh criticism, I feel like. Well, and he even delivers it via the Harrison Bergerone plot, interestingly enough, which I know, obviously, that's one of your favorite stories, Crypto. Angela, have you ever had it? Have you ever had it? I have not, but keep going. (laughs) Okay. So Harrison Bergeron was all about the idea that since we are not equal, we will make ourselves equal through self-imposed means by putting the chains on. You know, if you're really beautiful, you had to wear a mask. In this story, you had the the man that was really sexually attractive married a woman that had like a low sex drive. (laughs) I thought that was kind of interesting. But it's the idea that not only will humanity have to save yourself, but humanity has to help themselves too. And it's interesting the way that he uses the Harrison Bergeron plot of we shall handicap ourselves to the point of trying to reach equality, but not actually ever really reaching equality. And I think you know, that's I, a- I, I, I now ahead. wish I knew that story because I, I, I think this leads to what Crypto was saying that this was kind of tacked on. I could have had a whole conversation, a whole thematic story around those handicaps because I thought that was actually very compelling. But another thing I thought was interesting with this new religion and how it kind of takes over is this is a religion largely based off proof and facts. And I don't know, I live in a world where we do have proof and facts. We have science, but that mm-hmm. is always ignored by the masses. Like, y- y- no one will ever listen to them, at least in a vast majority. And so I'm just, I find it almost unrealistic that this would work, that if you told someone the truth, they would come over. Like, I feel like people would be less likely to buy into it just based off what we see in the world today. Well, here's here's a very interesting philosophical question. Angela, if if let's say there's this new religion called, okay, we'll use a character in this book called Beatrice. So the Beatrice Rumford religion, if that were discovered to be true, whatever it was, whether it be that Beatrice was the god of this world and you had to do exactly what she says, would you convert to it? Me? Probably not. And and that's what's interesting, is even if you know it's true, which we don't know which religion's true or not, and we still make a decision based on that to, to convert or not convert to that, even if you knew 
The Beatrice religion was the truth. You just said you would not convert to it. It's just a very well, interesting guess, philosophical question. Yeah. Well, I guess because, I mean, I guess it goes into what is your purpose for religion, right? Each person has their own reasoning for having religion in their life. And I think my life, I, I don't know what, I, I think I describe myself more as Unitarian Universalist on the agnostic side. If you don't know Unitarian Universalist, you got atheists, you have other people practicing dual religions. It's all, it's all do what you want over there. So I'm on the agnostic side. And I guess I have never really felt faith or felt the need for faith. So I don't know how to relate to that, but I could see that if you needed that for a reason, then you'd want to, you wouldn't want to fill it with something, and then you'd want to fill it with something you thought was true. I think that makes sense. I think it brings back to the story that some people feel like that they need a purpose, where others feel like human life is pointless, and it kind of takes us to the end of the story that we didn't discuss in a great detail in our plot summary, but it's actually pretty crucial to the end of the story of kind of to understand the whole thing, is that Salo and... His buddies, the Trophimidorians, did I say it right? Trophimidorians. I was close. They <laughs> they manipulate human civilization to get that part, and it goes back kind of full circle to your idea of, of free will. Uh, does it matter? Does it matter? Do you, do you need to know? Will it make you feel better? And is that not part of the point of this is that is the part that doesn't matter. What matters is that are you treating what's in your control, the people around you with the love and admiration that you can at that point in time, right? The, the opening quote that we had, it took us that long to realize that a purpose of human life, no matter who is controlling it, is to love whoever is around to be loved. Great, great quote of the book right there for me. Yeah. No, and I think that might actually answer the question as to why I don't go searching for something because for me, that is how I live. I want to be meaningful and connect to the things near me. And even just like thinking about 10 years, years down the line, that's not, not as important as the now for me because what's the point if I'm not here right now? Well, all right, we've been going on for a little bit of a while. I know we didn't get to go into things like I was going to talk about Beatrice and Divine Comedy. Obviously, she's the the, and- the guide there. I was going to talk about luck. <laughs> you guys are lucky we're ending this video now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You guys want a part two, just let them know. <laughs> yeah. I think we've been going on part long three. enough. Uh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe we'll do this. This book, if you could tell by the, the quality and the passion in this book, it obviously, whether you liked it or you didn't, it resonated on some level with all of us is what I will say. Let's move into our highly subjective, which may mean nothing to the audience, but just for how it impacted us directly, let's go into our very highly subjective ratings. Uh, Angela actually here was the one that kind of started uh, just about a month ago, the idea that we have like an analytical and a, a just a personal inspectional read rating. The inspectional read being just a first time just for fun. How much fun did you have? The analytical, how much did you get out of it? And what did it mean to you? Or what did it make you realize about society once you start down and, and kind of really analyzed it? So I'll go first. I'll say that from a purely just inspectional read perspective, actually, this didn't hit all of the cylinders for me with, with Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, I was probably at maybe like a 7.5, but I'd say for the, the analytical side, I'd be at a 9.5. So we'll average out to an 8.5 for me for this book. Crypto? Guest next. Go ahead. Go ahead, Angela. Guest next. Oh, gosh. I was hoping to hear crypto so I can know what a reasonable number is. Okay. <laughs> so I guess for pure enjoyment... 
This is, uh, I mean, I'm so used to a five-point scale. Let me convert to a 10-point scale just <laughs> real quick <laughs> in my head. <laughs> All right, so it's it's definitely above average because I finished it. <laughs> but, um, and it didn't make me angry. Although I, I, I still question some of the choices with the satire that were used. I mean, granted, it was written in 1959, so I'll accept it. Uh, probably a six out of 10 for enjoyment. But in terms of analyzing it, even like collecting the notes and even talking just now how much more I'm taking from it and how much I'm realizing I agree with some of Vonnegut's points, it's probably like a nine for like the analysis part. I, I, I did really enjoy taking out all the pieces. Do I think that all of these things should have been here for an enjoyable story? No, but it was still fun to take it all apart. So I, 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 uh, I wanted to love this book. But deep down, I know I wanted to hate the book, too, because I don't want to taint <laughs> Slaughterhouse-Five. And I know you keep telling me, Una, it won't, but I felt like somehow it just would. So I think my heart really wasn't in it. Uh, and so from a pure joy enjoyment, I would give it a five. Uh, it was just, it was all over the place. And I know it was written that way on purpose, but it's hard to enjoy it when it's just so random and makes no sense. And it just, at times, it wasn't fun. But from an analytical standpoint, it's amazing to see Kurt really start to take stride in him becoming his his own writer and his own man uh, and his own style. And I love that. And so uh, for that, I would give him a nine. So I would average out to uh, about a seven as well for for my overall rating. But yeah, enjoyment. Yeah, I'd say start with something else if you're going to, you know, try to get into to Vonnegut. Start with Harris Bergeron. Start with a short story. It's much easier to digest. Yeah. Cool. I feel very validated now that I'm close to what crypto experienced. So Good. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining us on this very, 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 very long discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but very awesome discussion. Thank you, very Angela. Awesome. Thank you, Angela from the Literature Science Alliance. We will put a link to her channel in the description box below. Please go show her some love. We thank you for joining us on this discussion and hope to see you. We're going to definitely be doing more Vonnegut, which actually is going to be much more focused. I, having read the next three or four novels of his, I can promise you that they're much more focused. And uh, <laughs> hopefully you like it better then. But Una out. Peace. Bye.